LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 4th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, members of uh, the Stormont Assembly were asked to vote on electing a first and deputy first minister. A first and necessary step in forming a government. 60 members voted, of which 39 voted aye, 65%. 25 nationalists voted, of which 20, 25 voted aye, 100%. 21 unionists voted, of which none voted aye. 14 others voted, of which 14 voted aye, 100%. The motion falls. A predictable failure once again and for the third time since May's elections. The Assembly has been unable to elect a Speaker today. And the Assembly has been unable, therefore, to conduct its first business. Therefore, we can't proceed no further. So now it's back to the drawing board, at least for the time being, as Northern Ireland continues without a functioning government. Unless these nominations are fulfilled in 14 short weeks' time, the British Secretary of State is required to call a second election. And a winter election, during a cost of living crisis, whenever people can't heat their homes, it's not what people want. Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, Sinn Féin's National Chairperson Declan Kearney is an MLA for South Antrim and joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us, uh, Declan. Will this deadlock ever end? I don't think we can ever become complacent about the current impasse, nor should we get into the position where we're beginning to normalise the fact that the DUP can be allowed to veto and stop the restoration of our political institutions to ensure that power sharing is restored in the north and at a point in time when we're all living through a a very severe cost of living crisis where there is money in the bank instalment uh, and a bank account instalment which cannot be spent which could be used to offset some of the worst pressures that our citizens are having to endure as a result of spiralling inflation and uh, other cost of living, co- uh, other cost of living pressures in terms of raising energy prices. So yesterday's uh, debate was absolutely necessary. Uh, we need to call out the uh, disgraceful behaviour of the DUP, and, and we need to amplify the argument for the urgent restoration of our political institutions in order that we can get power sharing back on track in a proper way. You say we it's disgraceful behaviour. Of the Good Friday Agreement and that we start to map our way through this cost-of-living crisis with durable government in place in the north. You say it's disgraceful behaviour. The DUP says it's representing its constituents and will continue to behave this way until the Northern Ireland Protocol is scrapped. Um, it would probably be true to say that they're going to continue to veto uh, the election of a, a speaker, let alone a first and deputy minister, uh, up until November and an election would be called. Would you agree? It's becoming increasingly apparent that 
this impasse and the DUP position has nothing to do at all about disagreement over the protocol. And uh, increasingly we are seeing evidence uh, that this is all about the the loss of DUP dominance and influence in the North. Uh, the, the DUP, it would appear, are, are now sizing up to a position where they are not prepared to go back into government in circumstances where there would be a Sinn Féin First Minister. Well, then power sharing is broke, isn't it? Absolutely, and yeah. some of the elements within the DUP that we're dealing with have never at any stage since 1998 adapted mm. or adjusted to the requirements of power sharing. Mm. Uh, they have continuously fought back against the the requirements of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, the obligations of the Good Friday Agreement, and the necessity of power sharing as the political architecture mm. uh, which we designed collectively to draw a line under conflict on our island. But I don't think that it's acceptable, it, 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 it can be in any way tolerable for the rest of us to simply uh, give up and accept that the position of the DUP is in any way tolerable. We have to continuously stand up to the plate, call it out for what it is, and to try and ensure that the, the, those MLAs, and the majority mm. of MLAs, and it's really important for this to be recorded mm-hmm. with your listeners mm-hmm. this morning, the majority of MLAs in the North are committed mm. to uh, power sharing. They are committed yeah. to the Good Friday Agreement, and indeed they accept the necessity mm. for the protocol. Well, we hear that in the and breakdown of the vote. We hear that in the breakdown of the vote, but as you say, the Good Friday Agreement's purpose was to end conflict, which was to end British rule as things stand. Northern Ireland is ruled from Westminster. How long will that continue? I think when we look at the continuous chaos that's coming out of Westminster uh, and the current Tory party leader contest, uh, which, from which we will see the results in the course of the next few weeks, one thing is certain from that particular leadership contest, we are going to get another neo-Thatcherite uh, elements of the Tory party, which have, again, like elements of the DUP, never reconciled themselves to the mm. peace process or to the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. I think all of that underlines the need for well, people in this part of the I think Liz Truss is the uh, favourite, isn't she? And uh, quite possibly the biggest cheerleader of all for scrapping the protocol. If the protocol was to be scrapped uh, and the DUP was to take up seats in uh, Stormont, uh, would Sinn Féin uh, under such circumstances? Well, if I can just finish the point that I was making, what we're seeing at the moment being played out in Westminster and in Whitehall underlines the absolute requirement and need for why people here in this part of our island do better on our own without interference and continued jurisdiction by Tory rule in in Ireland. The the Tories have nothing to offer to the peace process and they have absolutely no regard or concern for the well-being or the welfare of any citizen living on the, the north of Ireland. And they care little for British and Irish relations which are now at an all-time low since the inception of the Good Friday Agreement itself. Regardless to to who comes out on top in relation to this Mm. uh, Tory leadership contest, it's not about the person, it's about the policy. And what's clearly uh, required in this period going forward is an absolute sea change in relation to British policy towards the North and a British policy towards the Good Friday Agreement itself. Mm. 
Yeah. So if the DUP won't take up seats uh, unless uh, the protocol is scrapped, uh, what happens if they get their way, if I can put it that way? Will Sinn Féin take up seats under such a circumstance? Sinn Féin will continue to uh, represent every citizen in the north of Ireland. We will continue to give the leadership that the DUP have failed to provide. Mm. And we're absolutely committed to working with every other party uh, which is committed to implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. There are other... Oh, this is a total breach, of the, this is a total breach of the Good Friday Agreement, is it? I mean, you're not saying uh, that you'd allow the British government to unilaterally breach the Good Friday Agreement and, and indeed uh, the Brexit deal and the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, in the way that uh, has been envisaged and that you would take up seats in the Assembly uh, in a situation that would result in the restoration of a hard border on this island. I think we're fast approaching uncharted waters uh, and they, those uh, questions that you're posing uh, raise many question marks about the future viability of uh, the power sharing institutions in the north of Ireland. Mm. I don't think that we can acquiesce in the face of that negativity on the part of the DUP or the Tories. I think we have to continuously give our people hope. We have to set out a roadmap for continued democratic transformation of the North. But the logically, I, I'm, that, so, I'm sorry to cut across to you. I, I know you're yeah, short in time and I, I don't mean to cut across you unnecessarily, but logically there is no hope. Uh, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Uh, and if power sharing uh, is broken permanently, uh, we're looking at British rule permanently, are we not? No, I think what we're looking at is the uh, the increasing uh, approach of uh, constitutional change on our island. A constitutional change is now clearly fixed on the political horizon. What we need to see is the uh, decision taken for the facilitation of a unity referendum on the island of Ireland so that Irish people north and south can exercise the right of self-determination. And we're seeing increasing reasons, both in Britain and as a result of the stance of the DUP, as to why we will do much better as, as a single people in the new national constitutional democracy looking after our own affairs. OK. we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Declan Kearney is Sinn Féin's national chairperson and an MLA for South Antrim. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it seems like uh, the cat is out of uh, the bag and now a lot of people know that you can use food the day after and possibly days after its best before date. Uh, This has been highlighted uh, so that people do use food uh, instead of throwing out perfectly good food uh, and supermarkets are, are being encouraged to drop these best before dates. Let's speak to Dr. Mairead McCann who's Food Science Technical Executive with Safe Food Ireland. A very good morning to you uh, Mairead and uh, thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using perfectly good food if the date on it uh, doesn't indicate that it's safe to use it. That's true. Good morning Michael. The, yeah, the best before dates. Yeah, it's not. It's not a food safety issue, is what we're saying. Yeah. Um, best before dates are typically used on foods with a longer shelf life, and I suppose they're only a guideline as to indicate when to use the product to ensure it's at its highest quality standard. Mm. So, in terms of like taste and texture, things mm. like that, it'll be at the highest quality before the best before date expires. Yeah, but, well, you're not going to get salmonella off uh, an onion or a carrot, are you? <laughs> 
no, that's true. Yeah, but so, quite often so, you see them on the cheap shelf in the supermarket. Some of us are a bit upset about this uh, because it's not that the supermarkets are, are throwing them out. Uh, they're putting them uh, on sale for very uh, cheap prices uh, and you can get great bargains uh, as a, a result uh, and get perfectly good food <laughs> to bring home with you. Uh, that's going to stop, I take it, though, if they get rid of these best before dates. Yeah, well, yeah, provided the food has been stored properly and if it has mm. a best before date, you know, the packaging hasn't been opened, if it's things like your canned food, your pasta, things like that, you can use your own judgment whether the quality of the food is still acceptable after the best before date. And as you said, for things like uncut, uncut sorry, fruit and vegetables, mm. provided they haven't started to rot, you can use your own discretion um, as to whether it's good enough to eat. And that's what I do anyway with fruit and Absolutely, vegetables. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. As yeah. I say, I quite often buy vegetables uh, and fruit uh, quite cheaply because uh, they've passed their, or just about to pass their best before date, which is very different than the use-by dates that you'll yes, see on products. and I suppose yeah. that's what we're trying to highlight, you know, that best before dates shouldn't be confused with use-by dates. And these are on perishable foods that you'll find typically in your fridge mm. section in the supermarket. So cooked meats, dairy products, your prepared salads, things like that. And they need to be stored safely following the instructions on the labels and they need to be eaten by within the use-by date. So the use-by date, in this case, is about the safety and it's a deadline. Mm. And I suppose, you know, you shouldn't eat the food after this date has passed. Right. And I suppose just to bear in mind too that the use-by date is only valid as long as it's been stored properly and the packaging is sealed. And, you know, for example, if you have cooked meat that is stored below five degrees in your fridge. And then I suppose another thing to note about that too, once you open, for example, a packet of ham, you know, there will be um, information from the manufacturer that you use within two to three days on mm. the back of the package. So in this case, you can't use it up until the use-by date. So the use-by date's not valid if it's opened. Okay, so if you buy a packet of ham today and the use-by date is, let's say, the 12th of August, uh, you can't eat it uh, on the 12th. It'll probably uh, yes, make you sick. Yes, you'll have to follow, yeah. Yeah, follow the instructions on the back of the yeah, pack. So you should be uh, putting it out in a couple of days if you haven't eaten it all. Uh, I I was reading that uh, because of the best before dates, uh, which as you say are only a guideline uh, and really can be ignored unless you think that the food is rotten or is uh, not as good as you'd like it to be, um, that 700,000 baskets of of food end up being thrown out in this country every year. Yeah, that's that's true. I think we've done research in the past, Michael, to show that up to 30% of the food that we buy is thrown away. And I think that's estimated to waste up to 20 euro a week on throwing out food that we don't eat, which nobody really wants to do, I suppose. So I suppose we have some tips on our website, you know, how you can avoid this. And I suppose things like checking the use by dates um, in the shops, you know, to mm-hmm. you know, so you know you're going to use it by the time it's um, the use by date's going to expire. I suppose when you get home, then you can put um, you know newer products to the back of your fridge and older products to the front, similarly as they do, you know, with stock rotation in the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, mm. uh, yeah, and also you know, once if you see something you know near and it's used by date, make sure that you eat it. You could even cook it or you can freeze it, which will help mm. to avoid, I suppose, unnecessary waste. Yeah, Um, bread is a good example of that, isn't it? Uh, A lot of people throw out a lot of bread, uh, but if you were dividing it up and freezing some of it uh, until you needed the next batch as such, uh, you probably wouldn't throw out as much. Yeah, yeah, I often freeze bread. It's a really good way of 
um, saving the bread from um, going off. Mm, there's a, a lot of things you can freeze, uh, there's no doubt. And, and soup uh, can be a solution for other things. Uh, I mean, you might be looking at some carrots or something and think uh, they, they could be better, but you could make some nice soup out of it. You could, yeah. That's You have to just think of creative ways to use up, I suppose, your um, vegetables like that. Then you could, I suppose, you get a longer shelf life. You can put it back in the fridge or mm. you could freeze the soup after you've made it. Okay, so yeah, this campaign seems uh, to have taken legs. There's a, a lot of awareness now. I'm not even sure if the supermarkets need to, to drop the best before dates uh, because people uh, undoubtedly have been watching this in the news over the last couple of days. But it, it does seem as though they're going to become a thing of the past, does it? Yeah, well, it seems to be. Yeah, it seems to happen in the UK, and I don't know will it happen here or not. But I suppose we're just, I suppose, highlighting the fact that you know, best before dates and used by dates are different things. Used by dates are about safety, and they're a deadline. I suppose that's what we want people to remember. All right. Well, it's uh, unfortunate for those of us uh, who like to buy cheap vegetables in uh, the supermarket uh, before they were thrown out uh, so that we could use them because they were perfectly good. But uh, undoubtedly, a lot of people will save a lot of food and therefore a lot of money as a result of it all. Thank you indeed, Mairead, for joining us on the programme this morning. Dr. Mairead McCann is Food Science Technical Executive with Safe Food Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, do you want the good news or the bad news? Well, is there any good news uh, about uh, carbon emission reductions? Well, the good news uh, when it came to the sectoral targets uh, for farmers is that the national herd won't be cut. That's despite the bad news of the 25% cut in emissions. Or is that the case? No, not according to the Irish Farmers Journal, which is reporting uh, this week uh, that livestock numbers are going to be driven down. And not just that, but the minister has 10 specific steps that he is taking to achieve that. Let's speak to Jack Kennedy, who's the deputy editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. A very good morning to you, Jack, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Tell us a a, a little bit about what uh, the minister intends uh, to reach his targets. Well, Mike, I think it's fair to say that the minister came out last week and and he said that, listen, yeah, the national herd wouldn't be cut, as as you just said, you know. But I think you have to look at this through a wider lens and and look at a kind of a bigger picture in terms of what actually is happening, what what schemes, what innovations, what initiatives are happening. And I suppose led by the minister, ultimately, and and, and for, for us, and for me, I, I see a number of issues that are happening with say, right across the industry, right across the different sectors that are definitely reducing livestock numbers or their, their modus operandi is to reduce livestock numbers. So, I mean, for me, it's kind of, you, you can say one thing and you can say, okay, related directly to, to carbon emissions that we're mm. not doing X and whatever. But for me, there's, for me, there's definitely, I, 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 I see 10 step straight away in terms of where the Minister is trying to reduce livestock numbers. All right. Uh, And is it uh, steps that will uh, directly impact on the size of the herd or is it incentives that will divert farmers into other areas? It's both um, it's both, Mike. So, for example, like I mean, a lot of a lot of farmers up around your um, neck of the woods will say we'll definitely be kind of, I suppose, using the nitrate derogation and have been using the nitrate derogation to to manage their farms properly. And if there is there, 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 there's a planned reduction in that derogation from two hundred two hundred fifty to two hundred twenty, it's effectively it's a stocking rate reduction. Is the minister going to force uh, the, I suppose the stocking rate on these farms to be less? And so that's one way he's doing it. So essentially, a, a farmer uh, with with a hundred cows 
Cowles might be forced to bring his, his hair down to 70 or 80 Cowles when, when the likes of that uh, derogation kicks in. Um, the other piece then, as you say, the other mm. side of that in, in terms of trying to roll out a carriage in front of it is schemes like, for example, the organic scheme or forestry scheme or, you know, a renewable scheme or all, all these uh, types of incentives, all these types of schemes. And while they're, while they're welcome developments for some farmers, effectively what they will mean is that there will be less livestock on these farms as these schemes are rolled out. Mm. And uh, there's uh, solar, uh, grants for solar uh, uh, farms uh, as such, uh, and uh, that will be easy money for farmers, but they'll have less land to farm. Well, and, and again, for me, you see, one of the issues with this is that, like, all the farms in, in, in your area, like, I mean, they all have roofs and sheds, and, and none of them have solar panels on. And yet here we are talking about taking up land that could be used for producing food. Like, we hear all the reports this morning of, of the huge uh, starvation that's happening in the Horn of Africa and, and the challenge that they have, those people there have, of getting food. And, and here we are in, in Ireland, in a country where we're blessed with the rain and where we're blessed with the weather, to try and, and can produce food efficiently, um, more efficiently than most other European countries. And, and effectively, we're not being we're not being allowed to produce food, and and some that's been diverted into 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 other areas, or simply a reduction scheme to try and get get farmers to to have less livestock on their land, which is it just it just seems the, the irony is the irony in it, Mike, is is just unbelievable. Okay, is there not a, a good prudent win for farmers in that in that they'll be able to keep their incomes up but keep their livestock emissions down? Yeah, look, I mean, we're all for, in the Farmers' Journal, we're here for farmers in terms of what, what's best for them. So if they can make more money from energy production, that's fine. They, that's their option to do it, and that's their choice. But, mm. but I mean, the, 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 the issue is, like, for example, forestry. I mean, the delays in terms of trying to get a, a, a licensing and planning for forestry has been phenomenal. Like, I, I have neighbours that have been waiting for two, two and a half, years to get into forestry haven't been able to do it uh, because of planning issues so I mean you need to kind of have the ducks lined up in a row first before you kind of say that listen there's there's options on the table here the solar piece again again the the, the, the incentives have not been there for I call it small time uh, uh, it's all relative to small time farmer um, initiatives in terms of solar it's been for large solar initiatives you know from large corporation type uh, pieces that's where the solar game has gone so far so I mean anaerobic digestion another another mm. example again you'd love uh, if farmers could be involved in that and some farmers would love to be involved in that but but again it's not like there's, there's planning permission and I know companies that have planning permission for 10 years for anaerobic digesters and it hasn't kicked off so you need to have the ducks lined up in a row first before you suggest that listen farmers have an option to do one or the other in terms of renewables uh, in order to kind of make a living and to kind of kind of sustain their income mm. and what about uh, European money yeah, look, there's there's no doubt about it, and I mean, we we've, we you can look across Europe and you can see what's happening in the Netherlands, where they where they are talking about a, a similar situation to Ireland in terms of trying to reduce livestock numbers. But the Netherlands have come, the Netherlands government have come and said, listen, we're we're prepared to put 25 billion behind this. Like, so now we have an Irish government who have come and said, yes, there's money coming. We we don't know how much it is, but uh, in in the meantime, we're going to reduce your uh, emissions by 25 percent, which 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 means in in when we do our sums here and when we get our exercises done in the journal we're saying that that means a livestock reduction so you're effectively cutting the cutting the numbers in terms of livestock but you're not willing to kind of compensate farmers mm. for that loss in production so yeah. and different scenario the target is 25% uh, there was this hullabaloo about 22% and of course these statistics don't mean much to any of us until you get into the nitty gritty of what it means in day to day life uh, but in day to day life you're saying that there's going to have to be a cut in the size of the herd and the 
would have to be a cut in the size of the herd uh, if uh, the reduction went beyond 18%. Correct. So the, the, the best implementation of science that farmers can do on their farms now, and, and that means spending money in terms of using protected urea, of using these new slurry tankers that don't allow the emissions up into the air, of using all the various bits and pieces, that will bring us to 18%. So we've a, a 7% gap to make up and... You know, we don't have any new additives or new initiatives or new science that we can bring to the table now. If, if there was, I no doubt farmers would put their hand in their pocket and invest in it to make their business more sustainable. We simply don't have it. So the only way that you can achieve that target then is, is to reduce stock numbers. And I, and I feel that the range of initiatives across the, across the, the department that are happening, we'll say, at the moment to, to do that. But it's, it's almost been done in the background and, and, and farmers are kind of, until you kind of realise the, the, the spread and the depth of it, you know, when you mm. put them all, all together in, in, in 10 steps, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's rather frightening. All right. And getting back to the day-to-day stuff, you're talking about less cattle. Uh, are farmers going to feel uh, this in, in their pockets or to what extent? Yeah, they are because I—I mean, it, 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 Mike, the situation at the moment is we have record output prices for 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 most of the commodities for dairy, uh, beef, lamb, and grain prices even are very good at the moment. You know, so at the moment we have record prices, but we have also very high input prices. Um, but if farmers are going to be limited in terms of what they can produce, or or are actually going to have to reduce what they, what output they can produce from the farms, well, then very clearly it's going to mean it's going to mean a huge uh, reduction in income straight away. And and a lot mm. of these farms have heavily invested in infrastructure, in concrete, in all the bits and pieces that that make up a kind of a working farm machinery. And and I mean, like they they have done that with a thirty year horizon. Like I mean, you don't you don't you don't make a decision a huge capital capital investment decision like that without kind of looking for twenty or thirty years down the line, like any business would do. And they, all of a sudden, the the rug is being pulled from under them. Okay, uh, but there's going to be a, a dramatic hit to the sector. You're saying it'll be somewhere between 1.1 billion and 3.9 billion, uh, which are huge sums, and there's a huge gap between those two figures. There is, and and, and the full extent of it, we we simply just don't know. And 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 the and the the, the other piece in this whole piece is that like it's probably only the start of it, Mike. You know, so 25 percent is the number at the moment, so that 7 yeah. percent gap that I talked about, but. In, in, in a year's time, that could be there could be another five percent on that. Like, and, and and yet we don't have the technology, and and yet the whole irony of the of food being demanded and uh, required right across the world, and, and Irish farmers can't. Well, there there, there certainly will be uh, additional cuts needed by twenty thirty, because by twenty fifty we're to get uh, to zero net uh, emissions. Uh, but we were also told we were told a couple of things that may have appeased farmers. One was that the national herd wouldn't be cut, but the other thing was that this would be voluntary. Yes, and I mean, but I mean, this, this is this, again. This is what I feel is kind of slightly disingenuous. Like you know, and I mean, farmers have to meet. This is a legal target. This is a legal binding mm. target. Now, it's not just a number, as you say, and 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 really doesn't really mean much. Twenty five percent or twenty two percent or whatever. Mm, mm, but this is mm. a legally binding target that the country has to make up. So there is going to be someone has going to have to pay for it if the target isn't achieved. But I feel, as you say, it's voluntary. But I feel the farmers are being led in a direction by these 10 steps that are happening right across the country in all the different sectors and that effectively is what's going to happen. They're going to kind of reduce the the national herd by skeleton effect. And you said further cuts could be uh, asked in a a year or two. 
Uh, is that because of the national picture and how there's all of these sectors, whether it's transport, energy, building, uh, or, or whatever we're talking about, uh, that there's this legal obligation, because you're talking about legal obligations on agriculture, but there's this legal obligation on the government to reduce emissions by 51% by 2030. But when you add it all up, apparently it only comes to 43%. So are, are you saying that in a year or two they could come back to agriculture and say, we need more, we're just not going to get to the 51? Yeah, very much so. And I think there's a, there's, a, there's another sector that's, that hasn't yet, that has been kind of apart for the moment, the land use and land use change and forestry sector, mm. uh, Mike, and effectively farmers will take a lot of the heavy lifting in that sector as well in terms of what happens on, the, on, their, on their land. But uh, that still hasn't been allocated, I, I call it, and, and there's a review ongoing and that's due to be completed in 18 months' time, according to the Minister. And until we get the results of that land use review that's ongoing at the moment, um, they have they've they've essentially parked that, but that that effectively will be carried by the majority of landowners and and rural dwellers as well across rural okay. Ireland. So All right. yeah, that I, challenge is coming as well. I, I suppose what well, we're a week or so into this, the dust has settled, if you like, to a, a large degree. Uh, how are you gauging uh, the mood amongst farmers at, at this stage? Uh, do they feel it's achievable, or do they feel that it's so unachievable that there's going to be trouble? Look at the, the, there. They're already working on a lot of the issues to get to the 18%, Mike. You know, so there's there's 40%, 50% of the slurry is now being spread on low emission with low emission spreading technology. So there's like that, that's just one example mm. I'm using. But there's a lot of things that are happening on farm that are definitely farmers are saying, listen, yes, we're willing to invest. We're willing to if it's better for my business and better for the environment. Absolutely, we'll put our hands in our pockets and do it. You know, but but it, again, it, similar to what to, to your sentiment earlier in terms of 25%, 22%. I, I do what I can. The farmers, what we're getting back from farmers is I do what I can to work the environment to make a better place for, for, for my family and for my, my, my um, ancestors to kind of a farm in this farm in the future. So I, I will do it. So I think there's a, there's a lot of realisation that, yes, we're, we're willing to put our hand in our pocket, but, but, but we need the science, we need the technology. And, and I suppose a, a lot of that is, is just not there yet, Mike. And if, if, but if it was there, there, there's definitely a willingness to take part. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. People can read the 10 steps and uh, indeed uh, the analysis uh, that the journal gives uh, to the impact of these steps uh, this week. Uh, But thanks, as I say, to Jack Kennedy, the deputy editor of the Irish Farmers Journal. Now, uh, you may have seen uh, the news uh, that there has been a 74% growth in profits at board gosh. Uh, it's a, an incredible thing um, with uh, 33 million uh, pounds or 39.4 million euro uh, operating profits uh, for Board Gosh's energy British owner. Uh, that's Centrica. Uh, it's Irish subsidiaries, uh, they say, are operating at profits of 39.4 million from 19 million over the same period in 2021, a 74% uh, increase. And indeed, I beg your pardon, indeed, it seems to be uh, the same all over. We're all watching our, our bills go through the roof uh, and uh, God knows uh, the price of home heating oil has increased by more than 100%. But some of these multinationals are, are making profits, uh, greater profits, that is, uh, on the same scale. Uh, and it's a great time to be an energy provider 
when you're living in a time of inflation and energy costs are going through the roof because there is huge, huge money to be made. You may have heard the comments from the UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres. He's been very critical of this and not just critical of the amount of money that these companies are making, but critical of governments too, asking governments to act on this and to tax these companies, to look for a windfall tax and to give it to the people who need it most. It is immoral for oil and gas companies to be making record profits from this energy crisis on the back of the poorest people and communities and at a massive cost to the climate. The combined profits of the largest energy companies in the first quarter of this year are close to 100 billion US dollars. I urge all governments to tax these excessive profits and use the funds to support the most vulnerable people through these difficult times. And I urge people everywhere to send a clear message to the fossil fuel industry and their financiers that this grotesque greed is punishing the poorest and most vulnerable people while destroying our only common home, the planet. And many developing countries uh, are drowning in debt without access to finance and struggling to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and could go over the brink. We are already seeing the warning signs of a wave of economic, social and political upheaval that would would leave no country untouched. We're living through hard times, extraordinary times uh, and indeed an extraordinary statement uh, from the United Nations Secretary General. That was Antonio Guterres speaking yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, interesting to say the least to hear uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations uh, talk uh, about uh, the moral profits uh, that are being made on energy, uh, and in particular when you consider how it's the rest of us who are paying for it, uh, and many of us are not coping uh, for that matter. Let's speak uh, to Ushin Byrne, who's uh, the managing director with iReach and has been surveying how people are coping with the increased cost in fuel. A very good morning to you, Oisin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. People are finding it difficult. I think that's clear from your survey. Yeah, morning, Michael. Um, yeah, we, we, we've been running a series of um, research surveys nationwide talking to consumers about a range of issues particularly focusing on the cost of living um, and the pressures across many different areas. And obviously fuel, as you rightly point out in in your news item there, is is top and and foremost for many people. So we surveyed a thousand adults nationwide and three in five adults they don't have to make cuts to uh, cover increased fuel costs. So we see as as, um, we're all facing uh, rising fuel costs, if, if you're an electricity user, um, uh, solid heating, car fuel, you name it, there's pressure across the board. So we're seeing people really um, struggling and, and under pressure amongst so many other pressures in terms of their disposable income. OK, uh, and so the costs have been increasing at quite dramatic rates for that matter. Yeah, we see um, since since the beginning of the year, we see 71% of, of those that use fuel, uh, heating fuel, um, uh, being 
is seeing seeing a price increase. The average price increase we're seeing um, being passed on to consumers is 15% um, since the beginning of this year. We see similar pressures for those using electricity. Um, 79% have received notice of increases, and that's averaging about 16.5% increase. So so they, they mightn't sound like big percentages, but when we see that the mm. average monthly cost for electricity is about €130 Euros per month, um, adding another 16% on top of that, it really does um, co- cause a lot of pressure for people and, and really, you know, mm. co- causing people to, to look at ways of affording fuel. And, and we know facing into winter, we're probably likely to get more increases again um, as so many organizations yeah. and so many electricity and, sorry, energy companies mm. in Ireland are passing on multiple um, energy cost increases to their customers. And therein lies the concern. I think given how many people are finding it difficult to to cope or have had to do something to make it affordable because 61% of the people that you spoke to have had to make cuts elsewhere in order to cover the cost of fuel. Uh, uh, What what, what about motorists? Uh, I think you said 85% of households have a car. Yeah, so so as 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 we know, most people have cars, and um, particularly in in rural areas, we, we we need cars to get around, and um, you know, petrol and diesel still remain the most popular fuel types in Ireland. Even though we know there's been a huge push on hybrid and electric cars, only nine percent are driving hybrid or electric cars. So we see that the average um, motor fuel costs in Ireland is thirty eight percent. So obviously there are people, sorry, thirty eight percent, sorry, thirty eight euros per week. Obviously, there's people who will be paying a lot more than that and, and, and many less yeah. than that. 87% have noticed the increase in fuel costs um, and people's average fuel costs has increased by 14, nearly 15 euros a week. So so we see significant pressure, particularly for those um, driving cars and, and motor transport in terms of those fuel increases. Mm, no doubt. Um, if uh, somebody is doing any amount of mileage, uh, they're paying out hundreds uh, uh, and they've really seen the increase uh, and are feeling the pinch and will be thinking about going electric. If that is, is the case and we're all to go electric, I think they're talking about a million electric cars uh, in this country at some stage. Uh, we've a lot of catching up to do, don't we? Yeah, I, I think I, we, we, you know, yeah, we, we, we separately we've done research on on electric cars. I think the biggest challenge still remains is is the recharging infrastructure, which is which is you know, where where there are uh, chargers, they're they're quite outdated still. The time it takes to charge is is dramatically. Um, slow and, and availability and accessibility is still the biggest issue. So, so yeah, I, I think there's a great incentive to go electric um, and hybrid, but the infrastructure still remains a challenge for those that do it. So if you have, if you have home charging, I think you're, you're in, a, in a good place to go electric. But if you don't have home charging, the, the infrastructure, particularly if you're, if you're traveling around the country, um, is, is a big challenge. And, and that's going to be a, a major barrier to um, driving increased uptake of electric cars nationwide. Okay, no doubt that plays into why there's so few of them on the roads. Uh, I think you discovered that there's just three uh, percent of uh, the fleet, if you like, uh, uh, yeah. that are uh, electric. Uh, and 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to the cost of fuel, everybody's seen an increase. And talking about that concern going into the winter, 71% of the people you've spoke to are on notice that they're, they're, the cost of their heating oil is going to increase further. Yeah, and I, and I think... Um you know, we're seeing already an average increase of 15%. I, I think anyone in the know expect that to, to increase again. So we're going to have probably, you know, a bigger increase on top of an increase. And we're seeing that coming through many of the uh, energy providers. And, and it, does, it does raise the question of, of the justification in, in such and so many increases where, you know, we, we know that we're, we're our our energy is shared across the, the UK, through Scotland, into Northern Ireland and, and ourselves. And there is, there is no great sign of, of massive pressure on, on our network in terms of um, rising availability of fuel through that, that, that partnership we have with, with Electric NI and through the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so somebody should ask the question, similar to many politicians asking the question of AIB and shutting down their branches, what is the justification for so many of these energy increases when actually the, the suppliers and the energy companies aren't actually seeing pressure on energy and energy supply? So, so, it, so to me, there, there is a disconnect where the consumer is being asked to pay significant increases across all types of energy, um, but especially um, when we look at our, our electricity and how it's generated and the, the increased generation of wind and um, power, and yet the, the energy companies are passing on significant increases when their cost base doesn't seem to be, have been impacted in terms of energy, which, which yeah. then highlights the fact that they're making billions of, of profits and, and all of them are, are generating profits much higher than ever before. Yeah, and we were just talking earlier on about that 74% growth in profits at board gosh energy. Uh, it really is incredible uh, and explained to a large degree uh, by the findings of uh, this latest iReach Insight uh, because we're all paying so much more uh, for our gas, electricity, oil uh, and so on. Oshin, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Byrne is the Managing Director with iReach. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that are coming to us. Uh, Somebody says there's only 3% of electric cars on the roads because people don't have the money to buy them. That's the fact of the matter. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that uh, with us. M. Greg says EV cars are a waste of time. Time spent charging them is making the trip longer. They're way too expensive. The batteries only last four years and they cost an arm and a leg to replace. I'll stick with my diesel engine. Thank you very much, says Greg. Thank you, Greg. 
for that. I think when you hear about uh, these targets uh, and it's a 50% cut in um, the targets, uh, the emissions uh, for transport, uh, as I recall, uh, that you're going to see uh, some persuasion uh, and that could be an increase in things like diesel that create emissions. Uh, Sheila in touch with us uh, saying uh, at last some common sense has prevailed on the issue of best before dates. It used to drive her crazy to see people throwing out perfectly good food simply because of a date written on the box. It was simple, she says. People have been throwing their hard-earned money into the bin and given the current financial struggles faced by many people we can't afford to be doing that. I don't know, Sheila, I'm a little bit out of sorts about it. I like to go to uh, the uh, knock-down price section of uh, the vegetable uh, stall uh, um, in the supermarkets and used to get vegetables for next to nothing because of the best before dates. Anyway, Barry says, uh, watching the goings-on in Stormont yesterday, it's like watching a bunch of toddlers trying to get along. None of them want to share their toys or to be seen to be giving in to each other. The urgent need for them to form a government uh, is obvious. The more time-wasting that goes on, then the harder life is going to be for people in the north. The MLAs should face penalties for every day that they fail to reach agreement and have their wages docked severely each day. That would put a bit of manners on them. And knock a bit of sense into them. Well, that could go on for some time, <laughs> I think, uh, because there's going to be some time, I think, before there's anything that comes anywhere near an agreement. Uh, Tommy in touch with us, too, about best before dates, and he says he, he's never taken any notice of best before dates as he can't believe that people have been wasting so much money over the years following the silly rule. Common sense will tell you when food is spoiled or on the turn, all you have to do is smell it. The amount of food waste in this country is disgraceful, particularly when there are millions starving around the world. Thank you indeed uh, for that Tommy I think uh, people used to learn about eggs and if they floated or not and as to whether they'd gone off or not and some people are still prudent in that sense uh, and ignore the those dates uh, although that's a, a, a dangerous game at the same time isn't it uh, another call to us uh, from um, uh, it's a text actually that's come to us uh, from Mick and Kells who says he, he doesn't agree with doing away the best before dates he says we might get food poison uh, I don't think so Mick just to reiterate what they were saying there's the use by dates and you should follow those dates or you might get food poisoning and then there's the best before dates which is just a, a guideline which means your carrot or your onion is at its prime uh, and uh, it's not a wobbly carrot uh, that'll be a, you know a good firm uh, crunching it and all of that sort of stuff uh, but you won't get sick if it's wobbly uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us uh, about uh, the North he says I hope that there is never an executive set up again in the North the DUP should not be allowed to have any power up there ever again thank you uh, for that Claire in Mead says good morning Michael our government are really no good how can they let prices go up when you see the profits that Electric Ireland and Borg Gosh are making millions uh, thank you Claire in Mead for your text at the programme this morning indeed. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, you know that there's a housing crisis and uh, the government says it's allocating millions uh, to help solve uh, that housing crisis. Uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday that the government will 
uh, reach its targets despite being 28% behind at this stage. Uh, Michal Martin said, uh, according to the Irish Examiner today, it's a, a mid-year outcome. So to the end of the year, we want to obviously make sure that we spend what we have allocated, although, as you know, some can be moved into next year in terms of projects. Uh, Well, uh, that's quite possible given the figures. Uh, As you heard on the programme yesterday, the Irish Examiner were reporting uh, that uh, there was £705 to be spent on capital expenditure on housing uh, and related matters. This is between April and June of this year. 506 was spent instead of 705 million, so there was a a 200 million euro shortfall. Uh, Let's uh, speak uh, to people before Profit TD, Paul Murphy. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. I'm sure, like all of us, uh, you were uh, concerned to to see that story in the Irish Examiner yesterday. I'm probably uh, relieved to hear the Taoiseach uh, tell us today that uh, the government will reach its targets. Hey, Michael. Um, We'll see whether they do reach their targets. I mean, at the moment, they're on track to miss their targets for building social housing for the third year in a row. Um, The last couple of years, they've had the excuse and the reason of uh, COVID interrupting construction, which was certainly true for 2020, less so for 2021. Um, But now they are significantly behind uh, schedule. So I believe it's when I see it, and of course what what happens when they miss their targets um, for a given year of building social housing, that's it, that's forgotten about. They don't roll it into the next year, they don't attempt to make it up um, in the following year, it's just a missed target and they try and get away with as little fanfare and publicity as as possible for that. They obviously seek as much publicity as they can for their high targets, um, but then when they miss them, they, they hope that nobody notices. Okay, um, supply seems to be a problem. Uh, we're told as well, at least the Irish Examiner reported yesterday, that inflation was a problem, but uh, that's a, a problem that I, I don't understand in terms of spending the money. Uh, we were talking with uh, Peter McVerry about that yesterday, and if you had £200 million to spend and you could get less for the £200 million, surely you'd spend the £200 million and get less for it rather than leave it unspent. Yes, I agree. I did think that was a, a strange one, all right. Um, I mean, I, I think really what they're getting at there is that, um, of course, the, the state isn't doing this building directly. They're contracting construction companies uh, to do it. And the construction companies are presumably putting up their prices and trying to include inflation costs and kind of like, and that maybe is creating delay in the department including contracts with the companies because they presumably want certainty about how much these things are actually going to cost. I, I presume that's what that's referring to. Mm. But what, what that points to for me is the problem with, you know, what we're talking about here is a minority, quite a small minority of total house building done by the state. But even here in this minority, it's really the state employing private companies to go and do it, which creates a whole number of complications and delays. Mm. And to me, it, it underlines the need actually to have a state construction company, which therefore doesn't need to go through a process of tendering and so on, and can simply say, the state is going to build X number of social houses, we're going to spend the money to do it, mm. and we simply go and do it. And in this way, we're able to redirect labour away from building the offices and the hotels and so on into building houses. I mean, only one in four construction workers in this country right now are actually involved in building houses. Most, unfortunately, are involved in building other things that are less needed from the point of view of society as a whole, given the the level of the housing crisis. Mm. 
Um, if you had a state construction company, I take it that would do away with some of the bureaucracy, which seems to be part of the problem. But regardless of that, surely this is a system that is overseen by the government. And if the government has a system that's overly bureaucratic, it should realise that rather than setting targets if those targets turn out to be unrealistic. Oh, I, I agree. I don't think there's any getting away from responsibility for this with, with lies with the government. The book stops with uh, them. They're the ones that come up with the various plans. They're the ones who come up with the ambitious uh, targets, and therefore they're responsible when the targets aren't uh, being met. But I do think they're at least in part a victims of their own idea that, okay, the market is the best way to deliver housing. And in a sense, they view that the market is the best way to deliver even social housing, that they have to go out and tender for contracts for various private companies that introduces a whole extra level of unnecessary bureaucracy, red tape process, and potential for cost inflation. Um, And, you know, the alternative is to reject that entire model of delivery of housing, which is at the root of the whole housing crisis in reality, and saying, you know, we need a very different approach. We need a, a state construction company. Mm. Do we need gardens? Uh, there's a suggestion that our gardens should be smaller uh, from Glenvay Properties. Uh, apparently, the guideline is 22 metre uh, from backdoor to backdoor from the 1900s. 1900s uh, and they're uh, suggesting uh, that that should be reduced to 16 metres uh, and that they'd be able to fit more buildings on less land, if you like. Yeah, I mean, they're not neutral commentators in this. They're not mm, kind of disinterested know, yeah. parties. They're a development company that is looking to maximise their profits. That's their legal responsibility to their shareholders. So I think that's the way we have to view their intervention. It's about them see, seeing how, how they can increase the number of houses they can mm. build in a given area and therefore increase their amount of, of profit. Well, they're saying that, that we only needed gardens in the past so that we could have outdoor toilets and uh, have our coal there and grow some vegetables and that sort of stuff. And we don't need gardens to be as big anymore. Well, I think the basic right, the people, I mean, the, the requirements, they aren't for a massive uh, gardens and obviously mm. everyone knows people who live in you know what I mean normal yeah. houses who have normal gardens are not very uh, I, I, I find it a bit bizarre because they're talking about uh, a third of gardens uh, that they'd uh, deemed to be dead space or underutilised I don't think there's many homeowners who'd agree with that exactly I mean people people need to have homes they need to have livable communities which which can mean I mean mm. everybody doesn't have to have their own garden you know what I mean it's, it's perfectly yeah appropriate and necessary for people who live in dense, high-density areas, which we need more people to live in high-density areas, um, to have, you know, collective green space instead in terms of, you know, decent quality public amenities, parks, etc. Um, but where you have the situation where people have gardens, you know, I don't think it's not too much to ask that people in, in having a place to live, place to sleep, also have a place for their kids to play, to hang around in the summer, to be outside. That's, that's important. Mm, okay, well, it'll be interesting. Uh, I think uh, the Minister is looking at uh, their 58-page report, uh, which is uh, talking about dead space in a third of everyone's garden. Uh, but uh, it does seem uh, as though um, there's going to be a challenge uh, to spend the money that the government has allocated to housing this year. Uh, there has been a temptation in the past to put that into renting or leasing uh, properties instead. Uh, would that be a concern for you? Yes, I mean that's they spend you know, almost a billion euros a year now um, in the, the, the public paying to rent 
from private landlords in various schemes and hopping the biggest one but raz long-term rental schemes and that is you know a massive transfer of wealth year on year from the public to private landlords mm. and they would be much better off i would say seeking to buy homes for example we hear a lot about small landlords looking to get out of the market the state should should buy those homes off those small landlords to just buy them at market rates from people, allow people to get out and increase the permanent social housing stock as opposed to pretending that they're providing social housing by just giving money to private landlords who continue to own the, the property and are able to sell the property in you know, whatever number of years' times, whenever the, the leasing arrangement is coming to an end. Isn't it weird that we're loaded? Uh, our combined wealth is now over a, a trillion euro, and most of that is down to property uh, and uh, the property that we own in this country, and then we have uh, this housing and accommodation crisis. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, that, that encapsulates the whole the whole thing. We have, you know, so if, if you divided the wealth that's... that's we all have in Ireland, apparently, between every person in Ireland, including every child, you know what I mean, a one-year-old, mm. and there's enough wealth for everybody to have 200,000 euros. That's after death. That's net wealth. You know, you get the sense that we are an enormously wealthy country, the fifth richest country in the world on a GDP per capita basis. And yes, we have an immense housing crisis, we have an immense cost of living crisis, a health crisis, an education crisis. You know what I mean? You go down through the list. And point is like it's where that wealth is held it's currently held in the hands of the one percent and the, the top five percent I mean, the top five percent in this country are, are millionaires and they control i think it's about 40 percent of the total uh, assets after death um and like that's that's the problem <laughs> you know hmm. the capitalist system has funneled the wealth upwards and instead we need socialist policies to take the wealth into public ownership democratic control and use it for the majority of, of ordinary people. Okay, what did you make of Antonio Guterres' comments uh, about uh, the profits that are being made uh, by energy companies and uh, the idea of governments taxing them to help people who need it most? Yeah, I think it's a very important intervention because, you know, in a lot of the discussions around inflation, you would have the sense that this is some sort of uh, kind of natural phenomenon that's just happening and nobody knows why or whatever, or even the suggestion that oh, it could be if, if workers look for wage increases to keep maximum inflation, maybe they'll drive inflation, that wages are causing it. But the, the truth is that profiteering and war profiteering by oil and gas companies in particular is a very key factor that is driving inflation. If you look at the profits of the top oil and gas companies globally, say in the first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter of last year, they've more than doubled from 50 billion, which was, you know, no no small profits last year in last the first quarter of last year to over a hundred billion in the first quarter of, of this year. So at the very, very least, we need to have something we've been pushing for for quite a while, the idea of windfall taxes, mm. so taxes on these super profits. Um, for example, if you had a fifty percent windfall tax in this country you'd raise three hundred million euros from the uh, from the fuel and the elect- electricity companies primarily here. Um, and be able to then redirect that money to those most impacted by the, the cost of living crisis. Okay. Uh, there's good news uh, from the Exchequer. Uh, uh, the uh, uptake is 11% uh, higher than expected. Five billion more, uh, five billion in surplus, apparently. Yeah. So a- any excuse that the government has used to say, oh, we, we can't address the cost of living crisis, we can't insulate people from what's happening, we can't increase 
for example, those for those people on fixed incomes, we can't increase it by the rate of inflation, we can't afford increases in wages for public sector workers. No, none of that holds any water um, whatsoever. Um, and so it, it should add to the pressure on the government to act on the cost of living uh, crisis. There's a very important protest coming up, a national protest in Dublin on Saturday the 24th of September, organised by the Cost of Living uh, Coalition, um, precisely to put pressure on the government in advance of the budget to say we need windfall taxes, we need price controls, we need increases in income for those on uh, fixed uh, incomes um, that we need to see action and the government doesn't have anywhere to hide on this anymore. Okay. Uh, while you're with us, can I just ask you about uh, Sabina Higgins' letter? You've uh, been very vocal on uh, that and I, I think it's true to say that it's not too often that you agree with the Taoiseach, but perhaps uh, on this occasion you agree with Michal Martin who says it's time to move on. Yeah, I thought it was interesting actually that he made that comment. I do wonder if they know that you know, various Fianna Fáil senators on the radio calling for Michael Deacon to resign over this isn't going down well and they need to kind of rein in the, the horses on it, I, I think. Um, I think the whole thing was really a manufactured uh, controversy um, for two reasons. One, to... Um, but kind of from the, like, armchair generals in the Irish establishment who are willing to fight to the very last drop of blood, not their own blood, but the Ukrainian blood, um, against the Russians and kind of want to use the horrific invasion of uh, Ukraine to line Ireland up with NATO and a pro-militarisation kind of agenda. And anything that goes against that has to be attacked. Um, and secondly, I do think an element of it is just, for some of them, this is their opportunity to have a go back at Michael D. Higgins, over various comments that he's made, but most particularly maybe the, the comments he made in relation to, to housing. Um, they, they resent the fact that he was able to place the blame for the housing crisis at the market and policies that rely on the market. He was able to describe it as a disaster that was enormously popular. He's enormously popular, and I think some of them felt, OK, this is our, our chance to knock him down a, a peg or two. All right, OK. Well, that takes us back to that £200 million that the government exactly. failed to spend. We leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, People before Profit TD, Paul Murphy. Now, let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, Peter Andrahada says his car is 15 years old and he'd love to replace it with an electric car, but he can't afford it. Every year, he says, he prays when he goes to the NCT uh, because it's going to need work and he's obviously worried about the price of it. The price of second-hand cars at the moment is astronomical. It really is crazy, isn't it? He says, I really don't think the government understands how strapped for cash many people are. Well, thank you for telling us, Peter. I'm sure somebody somewhere heard what you had to say. Martin drives 400 kilometres a day. He says he wouldn't be able to stop for 40 minutes twice a day in his business. Which type of car would better suit him? Petrol, diesel or electric? He asks... I think we leave you to answer that if you wish, but I think we all know what the answer to it is. Uh, Bernadette says the standing charge on ESB is €54. Didn't know that. Betty Daly says, wouldn't it be much cheaper if uh, the councils got vacant houses deep cleaned instead of replacing baths and toilets and presses and so on? It'd be quicker. And we all know when people move into a new house, they put their own stamp on their homes. Thank you, Betty. Marion Trim says, we'd all be like battery hens if we'd no gardens. Uh, We'd (laughs) end up in asylums uh, and we'd probably build parks and then they charge us to go to the parks because we wouldn't have gardens to go to. Uh, Thank you indeed Mary for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch as always. 
And Drum Conrath has texted us as well and he says, bills, bills, bills it's scary, it's a, a real struggle for all of us, electricity bills have gone through the roof, we're struggling already as it is but we're being told there's going to be further increases, they know they have us and the government can't or is not doing anything to control it, if customers were to stop their direct bank payment it might make the electro- uh, electric companies rethink their constant bill hikes says Pat, thank you indeed, it might make the customers rethink if they cut you off uh, as well for that matter Pat yeah you don't want that uh, especially going into the winter but going into the weekend ahead of us uh, I think we're promised uh, some good dry weather it should be a a lovely August weekend and it could be a great weekend to spend some time on the beautiful Blessington Lakes uh, and you're invited to do that by the rape crisis northeast let's speak now to Grace McArdle who's uh, the manager with Rape Crisis Northeast. Good morning to you, Grace, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I know this is a, an important fundraiser uh, that you're holding this weekend. Uh, maybe you want to flag it now for our listeners. Yeah, so um, basically the event is happening on Saturday the 27th of August on Blessington Lakes. And I suppose the purpose behind the fundraising event is to help raise money for us to secure a deposit on a new building because unfortunately... The building we're currently in at the moment is just too small and there's no room for us to expand Mm. and our numbers are increasing daily in terms of survivors needing counselling support at our centre and we just don't have the room or the facilities to cater for the increased numbers and to enable us to take on more staff more cancers, more mm. volunteers. And that's it. It's not just bricks and mortars. You, you, you need people to provide the services. Uh, how, how much do you need to raise or would you like to raise? Um, I mean, what we're looking for at the moment is, I mean, ideally, we're looking for 200,000 mm. to help us to secure the deposit. Yeah. Um, I realise that's such a large figure, but we've been, I suppose, since we've had to move from our premises up in the Great Northern Distillery, which was ideal for us in terms of size and location and um, we've been trying to fundraise since then but with COVID and so many other obstacles in place it's very difficult to raise money and as you just mentioned mm. with your listeners there um, you know prices are going up it's very difficult for people mm. in terms of donating to charities because they're trying to just manage within their own home environment mm. so anyone who can attend this event we're very grateful and if they can't if they just want to make a donation we're okay with that. We'd be delighted with that as well. So any donation we'd be, we'd be very happy with. Yeah, no amount too small. Uh, and uh, indeed, it is a, a large figure, but it's such a, an important service uh, that uh, you offer to so many people. As you say, the figures are, are rising on a, a daily basis. And I know uh, we've been hearing in the bulletins this morning that you're finding it difficult to deal with the increase in numbers. Uh, we'll give details of how people can make a, a direct donation to you in a, a moment or if if uh, they want to uh, take part uh, in uh, the day uh, on uh, the Blessington Lakes with you in um, the uh, uh, the weekend ahead. Uh, but let's uh, talk about the services uh, that you provide uh, for a moment because we had figures that were quite shocking from the Gardaí mm-hmm. this week. Uh, they show a 23% increase in uh, the number of reported instances of rape. Now, that's for the first six months of this year. The Gardaí say that that increase may relate to a change in reporting behaviour because victims are more likely to report if uh, they've been sexually assaulted or 
raped or it could uh, because uh, Gardaí are, are, are getting better at recording uh, these reports when they receive them. Uh, what's your sense of that? Is it that more people are coming forward uh, more often or is uh, there a more serious problem? Are, are there more offences in other words? Yeah, well, I do believe more um, survivors are starting to come forward and there are a number of possible contributing factors encouraging survivors to report. Um, For example, there has been a lot of focus and attention on domestic violence cases and also, which also includes, and sexual violence cases that we believe has helped to encourage people to talk about what has happened to them and come forward to report. Every day the media is covering sexual abuse crimes the majority against females who have reported the crime to the Gardaí. And over the past few weeks, we have w- witnessed a spate of cases involving domestic and sexual violence as a result of coercive control, which became um, coercive control. Some examples um, are the more recent cases, former Garda Paul Mooney, who is now serving three years and nine months in jail for coercive control. Dean Ward sentenced 17 years in prison for raping, assaulting and coercively controlling a woman in the course of a six-week period. So survivors are watching, listening and reading about these stories, either the news or social media platforms. And um, are witnessing an increase then in prosecutions, although the number of cases going to court are still very small and reflects only a fraction of the number of rapes reported to the Gardaí. And those cases I mentioned were very much relationship-based, which would lead me to believe that there's also a greater willingness to report sexual violence in a close relationship than would have been, that that would have been very seldomly reported in the past. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there are also a, a number of other reasons. For example, um, the increase may be partly due to the investment by the government on state organisations. Um, and this is seen as a positive step by survivors, giving them a bit more confidence to report. Mm. For example, um, the new specialised Garda units, which are now um, in every division nationwide and are likely to have helped prosecutions to increase. you know, so the Division Protective Services... Yeah, and I, I think uh, there's been uh, some good progress under the current Minister, Helen McEntee, in relation uh, to changes in legislation, the latest of them today in relation to stalking and so on. The coercive control cases that you mentioned, of course, would be at the higher end of the scale. But I can't help but wonder when people are, are listening to the details of those cases or reading about them, if they're identifying elements in those stories uh, that relate to themselves uh, and, you know, how that control begins, uh, because we've been hearing that it started off with a a very uh, charismatic, charming individual in the case of uh, the former Garda Moody uh, and how that turned quickly into a situation uh, where... Uh, a woman was uh, being abused uh, and controlled in every way conceivable. Uh, but uh, are you hearing from people um, who are, are concerned that maybe they've entered into a relationship like that? Yes, I mean we we would have um, we would have a number of survivors attending our centre in you know such relationships and um, find being very afraid. Um, I suppose to take that step to report very scared, particularly, you know, because they're actually in a relationship. And um, it's that idea of, you know, 
will I be believed? Um, I mean, you know, because it is, it is different within a relationship. Um, when we're working with clients, um, you know, we, we offer them services that can help them in terms of taking that step to report. Um, like, for example, we have an excellent accompaniment service. So clients who may be nervous or afraid to report, if they do decide to take that step, the services are there to support them right from the start in terms of supporting them in going to the guards. I mean, we, we can offer a compliment to, the, the, to clients, um, to the guard, either in the guard, in the guard the stations themselves or in our own premises um, and our outreach services. And, and support for clients goes far beyond the actual com- accompaniment on the day. You know, we ensure the client is prepared as possible for the psychological impact um, of the event of, of reporting. Um, so, you know, the services are there when we're working with our clients. It's their choice whether they report or not. Um, you know, we, we're there in a supporting capacity. And if they choose to take that step, then we, we offer them that service in terms of, of, you know, walking them through that process and being there with them um, throughout that process. And that's why your service is so important to so many people and many people are realising that many others are being believed and many are coming forward as a result of that and encouraging more to do exactly the same thing. So when we hear uh, about an increase in reported cases, it's a positive thing and should act as encouragement to anybody uh, who has been violated in the way that we've been speaking about. Uh, If people want to help you with that monumental task that you have, in raising uh, that huge amount of money of €200,000. They can uh, attend, they can paddle a canoe or just act as a spectator on Saturday in Blessington. Um, You can be reached on rcne.ie. You can text CRISIS to 50300 uh, to donate €4 and you can phone 1-800-2121-22 if you'd like uh, to speak to somebody on Rape Crisis North East Helpline Uh, and indeed of course you're on social media where people can get all of those details and contact you very easily for that matter Grace. Thank you Grace uh, for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you Grace. That's uh, Grace McArdle who's manager with uh, the Rape Crisis North East Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you've felt shocked uh, by this murder in Mount Joy, you may be all the more shocked reading the Irish Sun today because it's revealing that those who carried out the attack on Robert O'Connor may have uh, done so in return for €200 worth of heroin. Stephen Breen is crime editor with the Irish Sun. Good morning to you, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, Tell us more, if you will, please. Well, Robert O'Connor is a 34-year-old man from Darndale in North Dublin. And he had been in Mountjoy Prison uh, serving uh, time for a, a different offence. As to the one, he received uh, a six-and-a-half-year sentence on July 27th for possession of a firearm in suspicious circumstances. On the Friday, just two days after he received that sentence, um, he was in uh, the C2 landing of Dublin's Mountjoy Prison and then around 6pm that evening on, on Friday, he was attacked uh, by, uh, which Gardy believed, three inmates. Um, he suffered bleeding on the brain. It was a very short uh, attack that, that took place. He was transferred to the Matter Hospital where he spent um, numerous, a number of days on 
life support machine in, in the intensive care unit, but his life support machine was switched off in the early hours of Wednesday morning. So the Guardi have now upgraded their initial investigation of assaults, upgraded that to now uh, a murder inquiry. So obviously the answers to this crime lie within the prison and uh, the guards will hope to uh, unravel the case. But they, mm. at the present they are looking at a number of different theories as to why this happened. Yeah, well, it's bizarre that it could happen in a prison. Or, or is it? I, I mean, a lot of us would expect if you carry out a, a crime like that, you'll end up prison, not committing one in prison. Yeah, well, look, it's very rare. I mean, the, the last uh, person to lose their life in, in Irish prison was Gary Douche in uh, August 2006. Uh, an individual was subsequently convicted of life um, for that manslaughter. Um, but, you know, it, it, there is still uh, within the prison system, you know, there are different gang affiliations. There are uh, people who are, have committed very serious and, and violent crimes, and that's that's their background that they come from. But on this occasion, you know, the Guardi obviously will centre their investigation on the, the CT uh, landing of Mountjoy Prison. They've already um, searched the cell. They're looking for clues. The forensic experts have not been in there. So uh, mm. the, the prison system is managed quite well. The prison officers do a very good job in very difficult circumstances. But there's always the potential uh, for violence. OK, and Gary Douche was murdered in, in 2006, 16 years ago. Uh, and uh, is it right to think that he was related somehow to Robert O'Connor? A far-off relation, uh, I believe, yes. So it's just it's quite ironic that this another tragedy has happened to the family. Like Robert O'Connor comes from a very good family, um, so he does. You know, he has had his difficulties with addiction and other problems as well. He has over 60 convictions. He's served time in the, in the UK as well. So um, uh, he was only starting his sentence, and looked at, um, you know, he's someone who you know was 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 well known to the prison authorities because he'd been in and out of prison for, for mm. such a long time. But he wasn't associated with any gang or affiliated with any gang. So um, it's just a matter for the guardian now to establish you know why he may have been targeted. Okay, and I see in your report uh, this morning uh, that uh, he was killed uh, by Stephen Egan, uh, who you also have photographed in uh, the paper uh, this morning. I imagine uh, that Robert O'Connor's killers uh, will uh, be discovered quite quickly because of where this happened and uh, there's a, a number of lines uh, that uh, the authorities are, are looking at uh, and one of them is linked to the Kinnahans, is it? Yeah, well, one of the individuals um, who's suspected of involvement in Robert O'Connor's death is an inmate who is affiliated to the, the, the Kinnahan cartel and he's serving times for a weapons offence which is linked to the, the Kinnahan Hutch feud and he's someone who has actually you know, was well known to the Gardaí um, in, in Dublin as well. So that's one element of it. You know, you've another uh, suspect as well who's uh, involved in very serious forms of violence, and indeed another one who's been linked to numerous hijackings and other serious crimes as well. So there are three suspects in mind, and the guards are obviously in no rush to interview or, or arrest these individuals yet as they build up the evidence, you know, uh, from the, the prison itself and they, they analyse CCTV, but there's no question that once the guards have completed their investigation and are satisfied with the evidence they have gathered and the information at their disposal, then these individuals will be arrested. But, you know, they don't have to rush this investigation. The most important thing is gathering evidence, but, you know, these individuals aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So the suspects in this case, if, if it happened on the outside, it might be a different story. At least the guards know where they are and they know where they can go to arrest them. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Uh, in the world we live in, it probably won't be a, a surprise, uh, but there's a, a photograph from the hospital uh, on social media. Uh, I understand that from your report uh, this morning. A close friend of Robert O'Connor uh, was in hospital with him and has been mourning his passing. 
Yeah, the, 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 the tributes that have been coming in on social media are still coming in uh, today. You know, his family are obviously devastated. The one, uh, a lady who described herself as a close friend of his obviously put up a photograph of, of her and and from him in his hospital bed, you can just see his hand. But, you know, they, they were hoping that he would have pulled through. But due to the serious nature of his injuries, um, that was not possible. And he, he did pass away. But the, the amount of support for the family and, and for his friends um, is, 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 is unbelievable, really, where people are just offering their support. It's a close-knit community in Kulak and in, in Darndale as well. Mm. And he seems to be well, well known. Obviously, he was serving time in prison. He did commit serious offences, but he, he does come from a good family background. You know, he did have his problems and uh, people are, are supporting the family at this difficult time. Okay, well, it's a, a shocking story, uh, but uh, the report that you have uh, this morning uh, that uh, he may have been attacked uh, in return for a payment of €200 Euro worth of heroin really will uh, become uh, a, a, a surprise or will come uh, as a shock. I think a disgusting one at that to a lot of people, Stephen. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme Thank you, today. Thank you. That's uh, Stephen Breen, who's the crime editor with the Irish Sun. And that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.